So we're continuing our study of the book of Haggai, Haggai, and that's in the Old Testament, and we're doing a, a short series through it that we're calling The Blueprint for Revival, The Blueprint for Revival. And so what I've said about Haggai is, I mean, it's a short book, it's just two chapters long, and it really leaps out from the reader of the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible um, in the prophetic literature, um, because unlike most of the time when God speaks and people don't listen, they actually listen to Haggai. It's, it's very interesting, and this should encourage any parent out there trying to raise your kids uh, or a pastor somewhere. When people don't listen to you and you're like so frustrated, join the club. Because that's pretty much what the prophets dealt with day in and day out. God gives them a message, they go speak, and nobody listens. But when you read Haggai, you're, it's almost like you jump for joy. And I, I literally did this because I was teaching through all 12 minor prophets in a class. And so I was just reading them intensely and closely and going through all of it. And it's just like, it's, it's a little bit depressing. Because God's sharing his heart. He's like, man, you're killing me. I'm married to you. And you, and you keep cheating on me. That's the language God uses. So you're just like, oh, this is horrible. And then you get to Haggai. And the people are like, yes, okay, we'll do what you said. And you're like, what? This is amazing. So what I see here in Haggai is, is a revival actually happens. And I've shared what revival is. Revival is not just one person getting right with God, deciding, hey, I'm not going to live for all this other stuff. I'm going to live for God, and I'm actually going to make changes in my life that real people can see in the real world, and I'm going to do what God wants me to do, not just what I want to do. It's not just when it happens with one person. Revival in the way that we use it in church history is a movement. It's a mass movement of people. It can start off with one person, and it often does. Just start off with one or two or maybe three people but eventually it becomes this movement, and we can see it in history. There's these moments when you have mass movements for good. Too much of the time we focus on these mass movements of, of evil that have happened in history, and it is wise to be aware of those so that history doesn't repeat itself in those ways. But we also need to look at the good news of history. We need to ask ourselves, what has happened in history that has been good? What movements have been good? And we can see a good movement, a revival here in the book of Haggai. And so I feel like, wow, if that's what happened, then what can we learn in order to experience revival ourselves? And so I'm taking the metaphor of architecture, calling it the blueprint for revival. And step number one, like building a house, of course, was building a foundation. And it's the kind of thing nobody buys a house for, right? It's not, it's not sexy. It's not the first thing. You know, on Zillow, it's like, ooh, look at the foundation. Oh, let me click. There's, there's a, oh, the foundation from the south side. Oh, the foundation. Nobody's looking at the foundation, am I right? But it's the most important thing about the house. If you build a beautiful house on quicksand, you're going to lose it. It's, it's not a good house to buy. I don't care what the price is. So we're building a foundation, and in revival, the foundation has to be nothing other than the Lord. The Lord is the foundation for your life. You make the decision that I'm not going to make my success, I'm not going to make my husband or wife or my singleness or my bank account or anything else. I'm not going to make that the foundation on which my entire life rests. 
I'm going to build my whole life on the Lord. And that's what the people in Haggai did. They made the Lord their foundation. But we know that once a foundation is laid, the job's not over. It's only just begun. And so in our second message, we talked about the courage to build. And it really does take courage to build. Not just any building, but a spiritual building. Because we're going to wrestle with enemies when we intend to build on the foundation of the Lord. We're going to experience the enemies of discouragement, the enemies of doubt, the enemies of fear, the enemies of pride and stubbornness. We're going to fight real enemies. And so it actually takes courage to build. And so we talked about that last week, that the people were given, the Spirit of God moved on the people and enabled them to have the courage to build in the face of many enemies. So as we get to part three this morning, we're going to be looking not just at the foundation nor the building being built, but we're going to look at the builder. Who are we called to be as builders? And so we're going to look today at Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, in a message I'm calling Renovating the Heart. I'll have the passage up on the screen behind me. Please follow along with me now as I read the word of the Lord. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priest concerning the law, saying, if one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, No. And Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these things, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. And now carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to heap of twenty ephahs, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw out fifty baths from the press, there were but twenty. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. But from this day, I will bless you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we just pray that as we seek to build lives, we pray you would rebuild us. We pray that you would open up and reveal the condition of our hearts. Perhaps we're aware of the condition of our hearts. 
and we labor hard to hide it, like Adam and Eve were hiding behind trees, things in creation, hiding behind our work, hiding behind our family, hiding behind busyness, whatever it might be, we're, we're hiding because we don't want to deal with the root problem. Some of us, Lord, probably are unaware. I mean, we think we're fine. We're like a person who has an illness, but it's, it's, the symptoms aren't there yet, so we're unaware, and we just walk around like it's not there, but it is. So, Lord, if any of us this morning do not know the condition of our hearts, we're not aware of sin in our hearts, I pray you would reveal that, not in the sense of condemnation or putting anyone down, but because you love us. And because you love us, you refuse to leave us as we are. And so we just pray that you would speak to us and renovate our hearts through your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let me just give you my thesis up front for this morning. My thesis is this. It is not enough to do what God wants you to do. You must become who God wants you to be. It's not enough to do what God wants you to do. You must become who God wants you to be. Now, this is not a exclusively modern problem, this idea of being focused outwardly on what we do and our work. It's been a problem all throughout history. But interestingly, I was reading a book by New York Times bestselling author Susan Cain. Um, she's uh, an attorney, graduate of Harvard Law, um, but she actually got into writing. And one of her writing projects was a book called Quiet. And basically, it was a study on introversion in America and how American culture is kind of the premier, most extroverted culture on the planet and that we so value it that anyone who's an introvert by personality is sort of pushed to the margins. Our culture just isn't set up to do that, and she does uh, analysis of Harvard Business School. And basically, it's part of the admissions requirement. It's not about how smart you are and what your grades are. If you are not an extrovert, you're basically not going to get admitted to Harvard Business School because we value personality that much. And one of the things I found interesting about her book is she talks about how America wasn't always that way. She talked about how in, in the, with the advent of the industrial era and the birth of the city, the urban center, people that had long roots, family roots in rural places, where character was number one. Who you were on the inside, your character. The, the word personality, believe it or not, didn't exist prior to the 19th century in the English language. It wasn't there didn't use it. It was about character. And she notes that we were a culture of character. And that beginning in the 20th century, and she uses Dale Carnegie, the famous author of the book and the talks, How to Win Friends and Influence People, he began teaching people basically how to be extroverts, how to become this American ideal of the loud, brash, confident person that can sell, the salesman. And so she documents how American culture went from being a culture of character to a culture of personality, where we don't care who people are as long as they get things done. We don't care if people are scumbags as long as they can make us money. But the Bible is always concerned not just about what we do, what we build, or how much money we make. The Bible is concerned about who we are. 
And so I find her analysis to be sort of a helpful segue into the story of Haggai. God is concerned about such shifts where we move away from who you are, your heart, your character, your relationship to God and your love for the Lord when that is no longer number one. When that's number two, and probably not even number two, it's like way down at the bottom of many people's list, we have a very dire spiritual problem, and you can make the argument, even if you're an atheist, but you study sociology, you can even make the argument that that shift is not good for culture and human flourishing. When it's all about personality and is not about character at all. So God cares not only for what you build, he cares about who you are when you are building. So we've made the foundation. The foundation of our lives should be the Lord. Then it takes courage. It takes spiritual courage to battle the forces of despair, to cling to joy in the face of all opposition and to continue to build. But now we need to turn inward. God cares about the builder. Now, this idea of God caring not just about what you do, but about who you are, is basically the idea that underlies the concept of holiness. So what is holiness? It's a very religious biblical word, right? Like we don't normally use the word holy or holiness outside of a religious context, except maybe if you're swearing on the freeway. Other than that, we don't really use it. So what is that word? What does it mean? So the Hebrew word for holy is kodesh. That's the noun, if anyone cares. And it has the basic meaning of to be set apart. That's what being holy is. So if, you're, if you're called to be holy, it means you're called to be set apart. And its primary theological use in the Bible means to be set apart for the Lord's special purpose. To be holy is to be set apart for the Lord's special purpose. And that special purpose is basically twofold. There's two parts of it, two sides of the same coin. Number one is to love the Lord and to become like him. Those are not two different things. They're the same thing. To love the Lord is to become like him. One of the pivotal aspects of this idea of worship is this idea of formation. You become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. So if you become, if you worship God, you start to become like him. This is what Paul argues in Romans chapter 1. He says this is essentially the problem of idolatry. Idolatry is becoming something you were never meant to be. And you're deciding who you are going to be on the basis of what either you desire or what culture desires for you, or probably a combination of both, give or take, more or less, depending on the culture at that point in history. But the point that's always the same is you are made in God's image, and you are meant to worship God and become like him, but idolatry is refusing to be that. We're going to be somebody else. I don't want to be who God wants me to be. So to love the Lord is to become like him. And secondly, to do the Lord's work on the Lord's behalf in the world. So it's those two things. It is to love the Lord and become like him. Character, heart, we might say, or soul. And then it is to do his work in the world. It's not either or, it's both and. We're supposed to do both of these things. Now, sin, 
That's another religious word, right? What does it mean? Sin is the opposite of holiness. It's the opposite of holiness. And the word most often translated as sin in the Hebrew Bible is chata. And it has the basic meaning of to miss the mark. And people use the example of, you know, sin is, is the idea of an archer, and he's got the target, and he's taking his arrow back, and he's aiming, and you got the bullseye in the center, but the archer misses and is outside the center. Maybe the uh, archer is so bad, the arrow doesn't even hit the target at all, like flies off somewhere and hits a tree somewhere. That's what sin is. It's missing the mark. But what's the mark? What's the mark that you're missing? Do you make it up? Do you decide what the mark is? When sin changes in culture, what you can know is it's probably not really sin. It might accidentally be really sin, but it's some new target the culture has set up. And that goes along with idolatry. We decide who we will become. We're not going to become like God. We will become like something else. And that also changes definitions of both holiness and sin. But the Lord doesn't change. That's what the Bible says. The Lord doesn't change. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so sin is the opposite of holiness. Now, the basic story of the whole Bible, right? So if you're not familiar with the Bible, let me just give you some ideas that'll help you make coherent sense out of it. Because I know there's certain parts of the Bible you're reading it, and you're like, why is this in here? This is weird, you know, what's going on? And I think even more so now with modern readers, just reading certain cultural ancient things, and they're like, this is just bizarre. I don't know what's going on. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. So let me just give you some ideas here that hold the whole Bible together. The basic story of the whole Bible is the record of God's struggle with man and with man's struggle with God over these two issues. That's basically what the whole Bible is. It's a record of God's struggling with man over sin and holiness and man struggling with God over sin and holiness. From Genesis to Revelation, that's basically what is going on. In fact, the very name Israel, Yisrael, means to struggle with God. And I would say this isn't indicative just of Israel, though, of course, that's the particular history that we are given for the most part. But, of course, it's also the history of the world, as Paul says in Romans 1. It's the history of Genesis 1 through 11, before the call of Abraham. Humanity is struggling with God, sometimes fighting with God, fighting against God, but it's this ongoing struggle. Hence the struggle over sin and holiness. So God wants his people to be holy, but humanity, that's you and I, for the most part, we would rather sin. We'd rather change the target. And even when humanity does begin to respond positively to God, because by God's grace, people, even sinners, can still do good things. Imagine what the world would be if people couldn't do any good. Even bad people can do good things. So even when humanity responds positively to God, as we've already seen in the book of Haggai, because they actually said, yes, we will build. The people who previously failed to build the temple obeyed it, but the obedience, Haggai reveals, is only partial. It's only partial. And the preference for human beings is to do the outward works of God while neglecting the inward work of heart that God also desires. It's the easier thing to do. 
it's easier to just keep the rules than it is to actually love God. Those are not identical. They're related, but in the Bible, they're not identical. Keeping the rules does not automatically prove you love God. A person can keep the rules for reasons other than God. One of the big concepts that the Bible presents in the New Testament really brings into focus is the idea of self-righteousness. This is one of the main things Jesus was calling out the Pharisees, who were a particular conservative party, sort of the scholars believe they're the forerunners of uh, the rabbinic movement, rabbinic Judaism uh, before the fall of the temple in A.D. 70. And they were meticulous about keeping the rules. They were so meticulous about keeping the rules, they kept the rules, not even the Bible, to make sure the rules in the Bible didn't get broken. So they were inventing more and more rules to make sure other rules wouldn't eventually someday possibly get broken. And Jesus was saying, look, you'll do all that, but then you don't actually love God and you don't love people. You actually don't help people. You love making yourself sit in the seat of righteousness. You'll literally sit yourself at the best place at a feast, the seat of honor. You won't wait to be asked because you know you're good enough. You will seat yourself in the place of honor. That's self-righteousness. You might technically be keeping the rules, but you're missing the point of the rules, which is that you love God. That is the point. So human beings if they're going to partner with God, prefer just to do the outward works. For Christians today, well, I'll attend church. I'll read my Bible. I'll do this now. I'll keep the rules. But they may not necessarily love God. And since Israel has already responded positively to the former in this book, they're building. They've been building for two months. Haggai now turns to the latter. Okay, you're, you're doing. You're doing what you should do. But there's a problem. Your heart is not right. Look with me at verses 10 through 14 one more time. On the 24th day of the ninth month, so this is two months after the last time God spoke. They've been building for two months. In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now ask the priest concerning the law, saying. So again, he's going to use a religious, cultural argument that would have made sense to everybody at that time. I realize it's probably, uh, for a lot of you, very unfamiliar and you can't follow the logic behind it, uh, but hang with me and I'll explain it in our language. If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? And the priests answered, and they're right, they say no. And then Haggai questions them again. If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? And the priest answered, rightly, it shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is this people who are building. They're doing the work of God outwardly. So is this people, so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is, listen, every work, every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. That just seems weird to me, doesn't it? So again, if, if you know the prophets, and you know what I've said, or at least you heard me say it earlier, that normally when God speaks through a prophet, nobody listens. They say, nope, don't need to believe you, you're wrong, you're just a hater, whatever, go away. So Haggai actually is getting a positive response, and you think God would be like, yeah, finally, we're building, you actually obeyed to build. You think, 
God would just be like, hey, I'll be a realist. <laughs> like, that's as good as it's going to get. You're going to build, great. But God interrupts the building. He interrupts their doing good works. And he does so because their heart is not right. Now, this section right here, verses 2 through 19, appears to many interpreters to be strange and abrupt. In fact, so much so that some scholars have actually suggested perhaps this section is the work of a later editor, not Haggai, who inserted it into the text for a purpose different than that of Haggai. That's how we, like, they don't get, the, some of these interpreters, they're reading Haggai, and they're going, this, this, what in the world's going on here? Everything is going right. You're getting things done. You're doing what you're supposed to do. Why would you interrupt, rebuke, and possibly stop all the work? Because what God said is, it's kind of scathing. They're building the temple, and he says, everything you're doing is unclean. Everything. He's not like, hey, you're doing pretty good, but you could do a little better. Here's a little constructive criticism. I know some of us handle criticism better than others, you know, but I mean, this isn't even like constructive criticism. It's like everything you're doing is wrong. It's all, it's all unclean. So because of that, some scholars go, this, this couldn't have been there. Haggai must not have written this. But such a suggestion not only ignores, first of all, the obvious objective fact, there is no version or manuscript of Haggai that we have in which this section is missing. So that's an argument from science. It doesn't exist. You have no proof that this was not there. In all the manuscripts of Haggai that we have, including the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is there. There's no version of Haggai where this section's missing. So this is what we have. As far as we know, this is what Haggai wrote. But secondly, it fails to understand its central theological purpose that is actually in perfect harmony not only with Haggai, but with the Bible as a whole. And that is the theme of holiness to the Lord. Holiness to the Lord. When God institutes the temple cult and, and um, archaeologists and historians, they, they use the word cult, probably not in the sense that we normally use it, but it's, it's a term for religious ritual. They call it the, the temple cult. So when God establishes the temple cult in Exodus and he establishes the Aaronic priesthood, one of the things that Aaron does, because everything he wears represents something about God and who the people are supposed to be in relation to God. And one of the things Aaron has on his turban is a gold plate and it has words on it. And what does it say? Holiness to the Lord. That's what it says. This idea of holiness to the Lord, that that is the, you're supposed to read the temple cult, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the offerings, the washings, the dietary, you're supposed to read everything through that lens. It's about holiness to the Lord. And so what's happening here in Haggai is that the people actually turn from their sin outwardly, which is good, I think, and they begin doing what God has called them to do, namely rebuild the temple. But a couple months into this work, the Lord issues this word of rebuke. And the rebuke is essentially, you are being holy in your actions, but you are not holy in your heart. And what proceeds from the heart makes the works unclean or clean. It's actually the heart that makes something clean or unclean. God cares not only for what we do, 
cares about who we are. And so to illustrate this according to the established religious understanding, so this is authoritative for Haggai's audience. He refers to the holiness codes of the Torah, or books of Moses, Leviticus in particular. So Haggai's audience would have easily understood what he's saying here, this, this rabbinic sort of argument. But for many modern audiences, they're like, I don't know what dead corpses and touching them with your garment with stew. Why would you carry stew in your garment? I don't get it. Um, so basically, here's, here's what he's saying. I'll just say it in the simplest terms possible. The problem is that sin makes our hands dirty. Sin makes our hands dirty. And so whatever we touch, whatever we touch, even if it's a good thing, whatever we touch with dirty hands becomes dirty. Now, as a parent, things change when you have children. Certain decisions you would make, things you would do, not do, completely goes out the window or comes into your window when you have kids. One of those things, one of many, um, is that I would never buy anything that was the color white and have it in my house after having kids. Like, try buying a white towel and hang it up in the bathroom that the kids use. What color will that towel be within 24 hours? The answer is, I don't know, but not white. Hopefully it's not brown, because I've actually seen that. Nasty stuff. So it's this idea of if you have dirty hands, even if the thing, the towel, in this case, the works that you do for God, if they're white as snow, but your hands are dirty, what happens to the thing, the, the work that you're doing? It, too, becomes dirty. That's essentially what Haggai is saying. He's using the religious background of Leviticus to do that, but I think we can all understand that this morning. If God says, I want you to make this out of perfect, you know, white stone or cloth or whatever, and you've got filthy hands, but you're working hard, and you're sweating, and you're, you're putting in the work, and God's like, no, 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 that's all wrong, and you're upset because you've exerted effort. You've done this. You've sacrificed. You've spent your time. But God says, you're not getting it. You have dirty hands. Everything that you do proceeds from that, and that ultimately proceeds from the heart. And so if we, like Haggai's audience, think that we can just do good works, we, we don't need God to make us actually holy. We don't need God to change our hearts inwardly, deep down, and our motivations and our desires and our values and ultimately what we worship, what we build our lives on. Then what we are like is this audience that would touch a dead body, which makes you unclean, and then go do a work. They, they knew not to do that. But the issue is deeper than just keeping outward practices or rituals. The issue is as deep as the heart. Haggai's point is that sin contaminates things, and holiness cannot be conferred simply by touch. So you'll notice it works one way and not the other. If you touch an unclean thing, you become unclean. But just because something is clean doesn't make you clean simply to touch it. It simply stays clean. That's it. A deeper work of the heart is necessary before our work can be acceptable to God. Now, again, this might sound like a strange idea to those who think all God wants is your work. Now, that's all you think. Just God wants me to do stuff. He wants me to keep the rules. He wants me to live a certain kind of life, be a moral person. If that's what you think following the Lord is, then this sounds strange. 
As a matter of fact, you might even be tempted to think, well, is he making this up? Is this just from Haggai and it, it's not biblical in the broader sense? Um, but I would actually point out that this is a point repeatedly made through the prophets over and over. Let me give you just two examples, one from Isaiah and one from Amos. First, Isaiah 1, 11 through 15, listen to this. Again, about this idea of, do your works matter? Yes, but if your heart's not right, what good are the works, even the religious works? This is the Lord speaking. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. My soul actually hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands to pray, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. And Amos says, I hate, this is the Lord, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them nor will I regard your fat and peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Take your guitar. Take your microphone. Get out. I will not accept them. I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, says the Lord. Now, if all God wants is your work and your sacrifice, then all these scriptures make no sense. They don't make any sense. And because there, there's so many laws, and of course they accumulated over time, religious laws, people would sort of get hung up on them like the laws are not a means to an end, but they're the end. That's, just, that's what we're aiming at is keeping a bunch of rules. But what God is saying is not that the rules are bad per se. Again, if you made them up and he didn't say them, he does have a problem with that. That's what Jesus said. If you're adding things on people's backs, God never intended them to carry. So don't want to add. But even the commands God has issued, they are not the end. He didn't, it's not like God so loved rules, he made human beings just to keep them. That's not how it works, but that's actually how some people think about God. He's so obsessed with keeping the rules that he's like, oh, you know, what is, what is living in eternity, omnipresent, omniscient, all this with a bunch of rules, with no human beings to keep them? Gosh, I need to create some human beings so that they can keep the rules. That's completely wrong. No, God loves human beings. He loves human beings. They're made in his image. They're his kids. Estranged in sin, but they're still his kids. And the rules are meant to bring them home. To show them where home is. To show them what it means to be human. To show them what it means to be set apart for the Lord and his purpose. This is what the rules are. Are for. So if this doesn't make sense to you, it's perhaps because we've, got, we've missed God's heart. We've missed the trees, as it were, or the forest, excuse me, through the trees. 
looking at the many things. That's why it's good to have a 30,000-foot sort of aerial view over Scripture from time to time to remind us what's all the little stuff for, what's all the rules for. And it's because God loves you, and he wants you to love him. God wants our work, but he wants more than our work. He wants us. He wants our hearts. As important as the temple and sacrifices were, there was a tendency, over and over, for the Israelites to misunderstand the point of those institutions and those practices. For instance, many times Israel would engage in all kinds of sin, but assume they would be fine because they kept attending to the temple sacrifices, and that's what God is addressing in Haggai. It's what he's addressing in Isaiah and Amos. They're like, look, we can live like everyone else in these ways as long as we are different than everyone else in our religious rituals. And God says, that is hypocrisy. It's not this or that. It is both together. And by the way, the point of all this, the institutions, the rules, is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is the point of all of the rules. There's a tendency to misunderstand and I think this is true of many American Christians today. They think as long as they attend church and keep the rules and do good works, that's, that's it. That's what Christianity is all about. It's keeping the rules, being a religious Christian, being better people than somebody else. But keeping the rules is only half the truth. And as we know, half the truth is a lie. Some of the best lies contain fair amounts of truth, or else people wouldn't believe them. The Lord of the Bible is the Lord of all, and he wants to be all to his people. This is, in fact, the theology behind the last book of the entire Bible, the book of Revelation. In particular, there's a statement there by Jesus to the church at Ephesus that, once again, to many, seems strange and harsh because it's a good church he's talking to, a church that's on the outside, like, people would want to go to that church. They're, they're seeing all the outside, and they're like, oh, yeah, oh, it's thriving. Look at this. They're doing all these things. But Jesus has something to say. In Revelation 2, 1 through 7, listen to what Jesus says to the church of Ephesus. It says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, the lampstands are churches, I know your works, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered, and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Wow, sounds like a church that should be commended and walk away, and that's the end of the day. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Here in Revelation, the very end of the Bible, we find a consistent message. It is not enough to just keep the rules, to just do good works. He wants you to love him more than you love anything else. It's the same message throughout the entire Bible. He wants our hearts, ultimately. He goes on to say, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly 
and remove your lampstand from its place. This is how powerful this is. Think about this for a moment. This really is something that caused me to pause and reflect. How, so you got this good church. They're doing good things. They're laboring, working hard. They're building. They're building a spiritual temple. And God says, but you've lost your first love. And you go, all right, all right, I get it. It's not just about the rules. It's about love. But how important is that to God? Notice how important it is. It's not like, well, you're doing, you got a good thing going. I'm going to let it go, but I'm, I'm just going to be annoyed. Like, I won't talk to you as much. You know what I mean? Like, I'll still be married to you. I'm just not going to talk to you as much. I'm just going to give you the cold shoulder. I'll, I'll be in the room with you, but we're not going to hang out, you know, and do, you know. He says, I will remove your lampstand. As I said, we've already had this decoded for us prior. The lampstand is the church itself. I will take the entire church away from you if you do not go back and love me first as you once did. That's how important it is to God. In other words, it is the reason for the church's existence because what's God's logic? Why would you do that? Why would you take a good, healthy, nice group of people doing nice things and say, I'm ending it? I'm closing it down. Why would you do that? Except if the mission for which you founded that organization in the first place was brought to nothing. You cease to do it. So for the Lord, the whole purpose of the church is to love God, to be the community of people who love the Lord more than they love anything else. That's your purpose. And that is how serious the God of the Bible is with this idea of loving the builder and wanting the heart of the builder more than the building they are building. This church seemingly has done all the right things, but their hearts are not right with God. And so fundamental is our love for God to our work, that Jesus says if this church won't return, they will have no church at all. The God of the Bible will not stop until your heart, as well as your work, belongs completely to him. But the problem is that the thousands of years of human history that have been recorded in the Bible show us this isn't possible. I mean, that's what you get. It's over and over and over. People just aren't doing it. I mean, some may be better than others, some not as bad, but it just keeps on going. It actually seems it's humanly impossible to love the Lord above all things and to continue to do so. The only solution to the problem, according to the Hebrew Bible, comes in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And I want you to look at this with me. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. That's the Mosaic Covenant. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law, my Torah, in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. 
the problem of sin of the heart is so deep that it's actually humanly impossible to love the Lord with all of our hearts. And so God proposes a solution in Jeremiah, and he says it's not that the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, it's not that there was anything wrong with it. It's that it exposed the problem of sin. It exposed the fact that human beings in their fallen nature are not able, no matter how hard they try, to love the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to continue to do so. And so God promises in Jeremiah that he's going to make a new covenant. And notice that the focus is where in Jeremiah? It's on the heart. He didn't say, we're going to have the temple 2.0. You know, hey, the dimensions will be a little better. The materials will be better. Hey, it'll be the 21st century, and you're going to have like, I know you don't understand this right now, but we're going to have bulldozers and cranes and all that, and it's going to be easier. The promise isn't to make the temple or the work easier or better or whatever. The solution is a solution of the heart. It'll make a new covenant, and in some mysterious way, God will change us, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And this new covenant Jeremiah speaks of is what the apostles and writers of the New Testament say the work and person of Jesus of Nazareth was all about. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and when we read, as we do, usually every week, the words of Jesus when he says this, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Jesus is inaugurating the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. That's what Jesus is doing. By means of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, God is giving his very own heart to us so that we might be like that gold plate on Aaron's turban, holy to the Lord. Jesus is God's means of making us into who he wants us to be, as well as to do what he wants us to do. It is my prayer that we will see our need, not just as an outward need for the right kind of work, but the need of a renovation of our heart. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. I thank you for speaking to us. You have every right and the freedom not to speak to human beings. If we've taken what you've given us and we've misused it, we've dishonored your name, we've made idols for ourselves, that's what our identity has been and that's what our work is about, you have every right not to speak to us. But because you are a loving and gracious God, you have chosen to speak anyway. Over and over and over, the prophets bear witness. No matter how many times your people say no, you continue to speak because you want us to turn. And Lord, I believe you've spoken this morning. And I believe you want us to turn. And that doesn't matter who we are, whether we don't know the Bible at all, we don't know any of this stuff, or Maybe some of us are on the opposite end. We know the Bible very well, and we've known the Lord for decades, many years. I believe you want to speak to all of us this morning. And I believe it's easy to become preoccupied with the things that we can see outwardly that our culture affirms and 
elevates and even idolizes as being what's most important about a human being, what they do, what they build, where they go. But you say the most important thing about us is our hearts and our relationship to you. And so I just pray right now, Lord, wherever we are, each of us in our journey, that you would touch us and that we would see and know and feel your love, that we would trust you are able to do what you've said you will do, that if we found that we, we don't love you, and truth is, for, for some of us, we don't want to do what you told us to do. We're like, nope, too hard. It's not what I want to do. It doesn't bring glory to me. It's not, it's not enjoyable. Nope, not doing it. I pray that we would allow you to change our hearts. And it's amazing to me that you're the God that is so powerful. You speak a world, a universe, into existence. And at the same time, you allow human beings to fight against you and struggle. It, it really does. I marvel at the value you place on human freedom because love is based on freedom. If we're not free to choose, it can't really be love. You could have made us robots where we were forced to say yes, but you didn't. Instead, you allowed us to become stubborn, stiff-necked people. But by your spirit, I just pray we'd receive this blessing of the new covenant, that we would have new hearts that beat for you, that desire to do your work in the world your way, for your purpose, for your glory, because we love you and because you love us. And I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.